Operation Varsity Blues, the biggest college admission scandal ever. We all heard about the famous parents, but how did it all work? Why were so many smart and capable people drawn in? How many laws were broken? Jennifer Levitz, author and national reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. We've got a really interesting show today, but before we get into it, we need to thank our sponsor for their generous support, Noda. Noda is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnoda.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, let's say hello to our guest, Jennifer Levitz. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. So I, I know we kind of spilled the beans a little bit in the intro, but in addition to you being a national reporter at the uh, Wall Street Journal, you're a two-time Pulitzer team finalist. You previously worked as a reporter for the Providence Journal, but more recently and relevant to our show today, you co-authored a book, Unacceptable Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admissions Scandal. And you co-authored this with Melissa Korn. So tell us about this. Seems like a really quick amount of time to get this book put out. You know, tell us about that process and then also tell us about the work you do at the Wall Street Journal. As many people may remember, March 12, 2019, there was a pretty shocking announcement out of Boston. The U.S. attorney in Boston had a press conference that said, we have just taken down more than 50 people in the largest ever college admissions scam ever prosecuted by the U.S. Department of Justice. And a lot of jaws collectively dropped around the country as the names were revealed because you had um, Hollywood actresses uh, from you know, Aunt Becky, Lori Loughlin, to um, Felicity Huffman. And then you had a lot of bold-faced names, CEOs, financiers, and a, a global law firm chairman. The names were shocking. And the, then what they did, of course, was just absolutely astounding paying large sums of money to get their kids into college in all sorts of interesting ways, which we can talk about. But soon after that, so I'm a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. I cover U.S. news, which can be anything from a horrible like mass shooting to COVID to the economy. And this was happening down the street from my office. So I ran down there and um, covered the, 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 the breaking news alongside my colleague, Melissa Korn, who's an education reporter based in New York. Very quickly, we realized that this story went beyond these big names because it raised so many questions about the system. How did this happen? Why did this happen? What was going on at the colleges and the college landscape that, that fed into this? How did they catch them? So we had a, a, a book contract um, fairly quickly which doesn't usually happen, but because it was such interest, you know, we were actually approached and we spent the next um, almost year writing the book while covering the story, not sure how it was going to end up because people still hadn't been sentenced. So it was, it was a real roller coaster of a story for us, the book and then covering it for the Wall Street Journal at the same time. You know, I remember when the news broke, it was, you know, it was definitely a big story and I followed it, but I don't think uh, at the time, 
that I gathered how big a story it really was, the importance of it, honestly, until I started researching for for this show. And so, you know, there, there's this big Netflix documentary coming out related to it. I did watch it. Uh, I did watch it. So it is out. Operation yeah. Varsity Blues, the college admissions scandal. I thought it did a really good job kind of tying all the pieces together because I'm sure as you covered it, there were bits and pieces that would come out as the storyline developed. But I felt like uh, this kind of pulled it all together. And then um, what was interesting about the Netflix documentary was that uh, it was really replaying actual phone calls captured by the FBI when they were uh, yeah. when they were doing their operations so that really kind of put it all together. And I thought the uh, producers and and writers over there did a masterful job weaving it together. But I um, want to get into this a little bit. You know, this it's been a little while since all this happened. I know people remember uh, Lori Loughlin. They remember uh, Felicity Huffman and, uh, you know, sort of these bribes that, that were put forth to get their kids in there. But I want to start with just kind of a brief, like really simple recap of what happened here. You know, what were all kind of the just kind of the pieces. And then what I want to do, uh, Jennifer, is kind of walk through the players of this scandal and then talk about how the fraud works. So give us just kind of a recap on like what was going on here. Just really simple. So yes, Operation Varsity Blues was a massive college admission scandal that ultimately ended up involving almost 60 people, college coaches, parents, a Newport Beach, California college admissions counselor. And it was a almost $25 million scam to get kids into school through a variety of illegal methods. And it spanned California to New York and involved elite schools from USC to Yale, you know, Wake Forest, Georgetown, and many, many bold-faced names. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, let's talk about the players here. So I want to elaborate and build out kind of these different roles. And then then what I want to do, Jennifer, is kind of get into how this fraud works. So let's start with the ringleader. So a gentleman by the name of William Rick Singer, as I understand it, he kind of like, I know that he was sort of the, the center point of the investigation, but I feel like his name was lost in the headlines because there were these famous Hollywood actresses that uh, were being pulled into uh, this circle. But, you know, he, without him, this really would never have happened. And as I understand it, he was a former coach, maybe had kind of a hot temper. So tell us his story, how he got into this, just a teeny bit about the network he set up. Rick Singer, he rose up as a coach, a basketball coach, high school and, and college, and he jumped around at jobs. Yeah, he was known for having this volatile temper, but kids really liked him. He was a real motivator. Parents didn't always like him, but he in the 90s in Sacramento, um, you know, he's at, at Sacramento State and they had a bad season. All the coaches got fired and he became a college counselor. And he was real successful because he knew a lot about college from traveling all around. And he also knew a lot about how people get in and the advantages that work for people, including being an athlete and how that can really tip the scales in your favor. He set up this college consulting business and parents would go to him and you know, started out. You know, he was, by all accounts, he was, he was very good at it. But, you know, he was crossing the line even in the 90s, you know, advising people. We, we talked to people that said he was advising them to put their kid down as Latino when they weren't, things like that. But he really took off in the 2000s, around 2008. His name started to travel in very wealthy circles and he worked his way into the private school world around LA and the Bay Area and finance firms traded his name and referred him to clients and 
he ended up becoming the go-to guy, you know, for many uh, high-end, you know, families who really wanted a particular school and just were intent on smoothing the way. And he could do that for you. Yeah, that was the amazing part to me was this really impressive Rolodex of referrals, kind of word of mouth referrals you would get from these very powerful, influential uh, parents that were really deeply concerned about their uh, their their child's welfare, wanting them to get into that college and set them up, you know, for, for the rest of their life. So it's just amazing how they got pulled into that orbit in almost uh, in, in sort of a way where, you know, one of their friends would sort of vouch for him. But, uh, you know, definitely, I think early on, you know, it kind of had that shady sort of look. I mean, you, you start talking about about you know changing the demographic of the applicant and, and all of that, but uh, I want to I want to transition over to the college side of it. Now, a lot of this was centered around athletic departments, but there were some other people on the college side of things that uh, Rick would uh, connect with to kind of make all of this happen. So, who were those people at these colleges and universities? Right, the main people were the coaches, the athletics department. What he would do is he would connect with these coaches, and he would tell them that. He had a client who had a child who wanted to get into this school, and could they designate this person as an athlete? And this worked, you know, over and over again, where they'd even create like a profile and the coach would be able to get the the kid in. And that's because, you know, athletes have such an advantage in in getting into college. But the coaches, you know, in, in a lot of cases, they had to present the, the person to admissions. And so you needed this whole package. And so his main contacts at the universities were, were the coaches. He did connect with one um, administrator, Donna Heinel at USC. She has pleaded not guilty, but she's the highest ranking person alleged to be in this scam. But she was in the athletics department. And the, the federal government alleges that, that Donna Heinel, you know, really helped him by, you know, he, he, he worked with coaches, but he also worked allegedly with her and she sort of with her, her stamp of approval, they were all but guaranteed to, to get in. Yeah, he really was. I mean, when I was watching the documentary, he really came out as the mastermind for this. I mean, obviously a very hardworking person as they uh, as they kind of showed him or kind of per- portrayed him to be uh, putting together this vast network of all these essential components to uh, basically fast track some of these uh, some of these uh, kids college bound and, uh, you know, get them into the universities of choice. So I want to I want to get into how this fraud worked. And so as, as it was described, there was this uh, there's a front door for admissions, which is the legitimate way you get in. You know, you you take your test, maybe you're involved in some high school curriculars and you submit on your application process. You get in legitimate, that's the front door. Then there's the back door, which is controversial because you may be, some people have very wealthy parents, said wealthy parents make a large donation and junior uh, will get preferable treatment in the admissions process, maybe. And then there's this side door. And, and this is what Rick Singer was putting forth, where he had this, this orbit, this network of all of the essential components. And as I understand, it was kind of a triad. And you got into a little bit of it with the athletic uh, recruiting scam part of it. But, you know, he really kind of had testing and testing scores locked down. He also had uh, these donations to a fake charity. So why don't we chip those off one at a time <laughs> and start with the testing scores? How was he able to, uh, I guess, circumvent that process and really help accelerate scoring and admissions through those uh, testing scores and the testing score facilities? 
Yeah. So, so when he first started, he had a, his scam began where, you know, he wanted to, to boost the SAT or ACT scores. So he just sort of did it the, the way he did it was he had a, a guy super smart, just go in and actually present a fake ID and take the test. He did that a couple of times for people, but then the right, that was around 2011, the SAT, the testing agencies were having a run of cheating problems and they beefed up security. And so you had, you couldn't really do that. So he had to figure out a new way and adapt. As you mentioned, he was just very ingenious. And so what he did was he found a couple test sites. I mean, most, most kids, when they take the SAT, will go to a school on the weekend or something. So he found a couple places where that's occurring and he, he paid off the, the gatekeepers there. And he said, okay, let my, my proctor in, my corrupt proctor in with this kid. I have a student who's going to take it there. My proctor's going to come in and he's either going to sit there and help the student with the test or he's going to come in right after and correct the answers. And we're going to send a corrupt test in to the colleges. And, you know, the, the, the big question is, you know, well how, well, how do you get a kid in LA to, so he had two schools. He had one in, one in Houston and one in West Hollywood, California. And he sort of picked these schools where the administrator, somebody had money problems, needed a, you know, these weren't the real, you know, high-end schools. These were places where he felt like he could find people that, that might need some extra cash. To get the kids there, though, he tapped into an actual system, you know, where a lot of students, they're able to get, if you have a learning disability, you get certain allowances for the test, accommodations. You might get extra time, might get two days to take the test instead of one, or you get a private room, you know, just get a lot more flexibility. Of course, this is a very legitimate thing. Many people really do need this, but his, his clients, um, he would make sure that their kids got this designation. He even had psychologists you could go to. He was on tape advising people to, you know, have their kids act a certain way. He would then get them relocate, you know, then change their tests. So they were flying to Houston or down to LA and going into these testing places. And that's how that worked. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how it was sort of offered as an a la carte, you know, services there. So it's like, you know, we can give them extra time and they can build out the score. You can kind of pick the score you want to get and we'll get you there. Or we can hire somebody to come in and take it for you and, get, and guarantee they're going to get the score that you want. I, mean, I just thought that was just amazing. It was set up like just a regular service, like any legal business might be. So let's go to the athletic recruiting part of this. I think this is the part that really kind of made the news because you, this involved Photoshop. You know, people would Photoshop their, uh, you know, kids' faces on on actual athletes, and then they would submit that as part of their admissions material to, uh, to basically uh, tell the university they were seeking an athletic position on one of the teams. And some of these kids had never played that sport a day in their life. So walk us through how he made that happen. Right. So yeah, so as, it, as, as we talked about, it's just this huge advantage to be an athlete when you apply for, for college in many schools. And it's the closest thing you can get to a guarantee in some cases. So what he would do is he would bribe the coach, and he would have, but he'd have to package these kids as an athlete. And he didn't pick sports like football or basketball necessarily. They, they tend to have more eyes on them, the recruits. He picked the lower level sports that were more out of the radar, water polo and lacrosse and crew, those kinds of things, you know, volleyball or, you know, where there, there just wasn't as many people looking. And also where there was another big part of that, why he picked those sports, because 
college coaches are often required to raise a lot of money for their programs and they're required to do this themselves. And many of them really don't like to do it. They'd rather be coaching. They're not professional fundraisers. It's a pain. Um, and they can be judged on that. So he knew that this was a, an issue and he would go to some of these sports that didn't make a lot of money and where the coaches felt pressure to make money. And, and he would offer them money for their programs in some cases for themselves. In most cases, he'd also give them some too. And so he'd help them out and they would designate his one, you know, designate them as athletes. But in order to do this, you had to create a whole persona, a whole phony profile for the kid. They would, you know, there were cases of a student who was presented as a water polo player who didn't play water polo and his father posed him in the pool at the family home with water polo equipment. There were resumes made of all kinds of awards for crew and international teams that these kids played on, letters of reference. There was a student who school didn't even have a track team who was presented as a champion pole vaulter. And in that case, um, Rick Singer's crew team just, they they found an actual kid photo of a stunning photo of a a kid in Texas hurling over this vault and they just photoshopped the other kid in there. All right. Well, before we, uh, before we run out of time here, you know, I definitely want to kind of build in this, this third tier of the scam here. So uh, when you follow the money, you find out how this is done and you find the players. Now he was able to channel the money from the parents into this charity and that would somehow get out to the university. So build that out for us a little bit more, explain how that worked. And it was, it was actually pretty difficult to track as I understand. That's right. Rick Singer had a charity and it actually, you know, did do some, there were a few, few legitimate things that it did, but mainly what it did was it was this money laundering thing where parents would, he would ask them to pay the charity and then he would pay people out of that. What that did is it allowed, you know, I think in in, in a lot of ways it allowed people to feel like, okay, maybe I'm donating to a charity. Maybe I can sort of pretend that I'm doing something good here but he would have them do that. But it would be clearly for these testing scores or the, the fake profiles. And he would even, the, the kind of the icing on the cake, one of the things that several parents got in trouble for is not only did they do that, you know, they'd have phone conversations where they'd say, okay, you're going to write a check for X amount to my charity. And then they would write it off on their taxes as a charitable donation. Oh wow! And see, that's gonna loop. In. That's gonna loop in the IRS there. So uh, right. So that, yeah, that that's that's uh, probably where they went wrong. So I was gonna ask you that when the IRS got involved, when the FBI got involved, it wasn't necessarily because they were hearing about something out there. They weren't in an active investigation. There was some other domino on an unrelated case that tumbled first, and then all of this began to unravel. So it wasn't necessarily because uh, Rick did something audacious or you know someone else did something that. Uh, kind of uh, smoked them out a little bit. It was another case totally unrelated that ended up being their undoing. So tell us about that. And then I want to talk a little bit more about the crimes that were alleged to have been committed here. Yeah, this, this, it was pretty incredible. I mean, his scam had been going on for more than 10 years and it seems like maybe it could have just continued to go on because, you know, people who are involved are probably not going to tell many people. And it all came to light by accident. A financier in California was nabbed on a pretty standard fraud case, stock fraud case. And um, his name is Maury Tobin. And he went back to Boston 
and tried to cut a deal with the government and he wanted to cooperate. Anytime the feds are going to cooperate with someone and bring them on as a government witness, they dive into your background and make sure you don't have any skeletons that could come out and discredit you at trial. So they're looking at his bank account and they see some money moving from, you know, from him to someone in Connecticut. And it turns out, you know, he comes, comes forward and says that he's been bribing the Yale women's soccer coach to, to get his daughter into college there. She's still in high school. And so that's what led them down that path. And they, they then set, they used him and they had a sting operation where he was still, he was still hammering out the final deals of this bribe, how much it would ultimately be with the Yale coach. So they bring the Yale coach to a hotel in Boston and they're, they've got them they're, the Everyone's listening in and the two of them are, are working out this deal. And then the Yale coach talks about, Hey, there's this, um, you know, let, let's talk to Rick Singer. He brings up Rick Singer's name. So they arrest the, the Yale coach. He quickly flips and leads them to Rick Singer. And then they, that was this whole chain of people kind of flipping. They then listen in on Rick Singer and get this gold mine of you know, phone calls that he has with parents. And then they get Rick Singer and he quickly flips. I do think they would have eventually gotten caught. They were putting forth in admissions materials sports that a given school where a student came from. There, there was no sports program, but that definitely accelerated the process. So let, let, let's uh, transition over to the crime. So there's a list of crimes that they uh, kind of they threw at the accused here. Now some of these carry some pretty big sentences on there, and I think in the sentencing process they were uh, pretty lenient considering the charges. But let's walk down that list of charges and then uh, tell us about some of the punishments punishments that they've had to serve. Yeah, sure. Well, Rick Singer, he pleaded to four felony conspiracies, racketeering conspiracy, money laundering, obstruction of justice, tax fraud. The coaches were uh, mainly charged with conspiracy to commit racketeering. The parents were charged with conspiracy to commit mail fraud, honest services, mail fraud. So they were they were basically charged with fraud. A couple of them had some other charges thrown on top of there too. But as you mentioned, the, um, the feds wanted a lot more mon- a lot more time than what the parents got. They were asking in some cases for like a year for them. They so far the longest sentence for any parent is nine months. Then it goes down to probation for a couple. But like Felicity Huffman got two weeks. So they were relatively lenient compared to what was asked. There were a lot of people who thought they they might not even get any any prison time at all because it was a, a complicated case and it was hard to determine the financial loss. Yeah, I, I think I was in that boat as well. I thought there might be a slap on the wrist, there might be a fine, but uh, you know, I, I what I didn't realize was that you know some of these crimes you know carry like max year uh, maximum sentence twenty years. Um, and if it's a supervised release, it might be three years. And so I, I, I honestly didn't think anybody would serve any time. So that definitely, definitely surprised me. So let, let's do this. One, one last question for you. You know, I think that this is the part that, you know, really got to everybody at a visceral level. I mean, these were powerful parents, you know, very influential. They're very successful, smart, capable people. And, you know, even if their kids didn't have, you know, everything put together for the ideal school admission, um, you know, get into the school of their choice. They could have helped their kids in so many different ways, even if they didn't get into their dream school. So I guess, why were these parents so desperate to get their kids into that one particular school over another? What what was going on here? 
Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you kind of hit it, hit the nail on the head. The, the judge said the same thing that they already had so many advantages that really they were going to do fine. They had, you know, just huge advantages. This was um, a case where, you know, the parents had a very narrow focus, which is kind of a problem in a lot of, a lot of communities where a lot of people, there's so many schools out there and most schools, you know, many schools accept the vast majority of applicants or a high number and there's great schools, but you have a lot of people focused on the same list of schools and it just, you know, it's very, it's very competitive and they just had a, a myopic view really of where, of where their kid could go to school. They didn't look very broadly and I think they, you know, had also, there was a sense of, I think there was a sense of entitlement. They had moved in these very elite circles for a long time and they got to their kid's junior year and they're told, you know, your chances of getting into school are not great. You may have to, to go down a couple notches and they just didn't want to. They didn't want to hear no. They weren't used to hearing no. And along comes Rick Singer and he doesn't say no. Wow. I mean, just, just an amazing story there. Well, well, Jennifer, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you very much. It was great to be here. And if our listeners, they might want to learn more about your work, where's the best place to find you? They can find me on Twitter at Jennifer Levitz. They can find my work at the Wall Street Journal. My co-author, Melissa Korn, is at Melissa Korn. Um, we both continue to cover the case for the journal. So we look forward to, to hearing from people. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. And one more thank you to our sponsor, Noda. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never least, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN audio crew for all their hard work. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 